House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And, of course, I'm Al Warren, again, holding the reins because Mr. David <laughs> Martino went wild this week with them. Crazy. I'll tell you. If we're still on the air next week, I'm, it's your, you know, I don't even know. Yeah. You're just a wild man. That's right. You know, you have to be careful who I have <laughs> run the show. It's, it's, my so God. It was a mutiny. Yeah, I you know, I thought it was like the gay Howard Stern thing going on here. There was everything going on here. My God, I couldn't believe the things you got away with. But keep the door locked and they can't get in and they can't prove it. That's right. Well, speaking of that, um, we've got the door open for um, a a writer here. He's, he's written a very interesting story and uh, kind of covers true crime and personal kind of memoir in a sense um it's very very um family um for him so uh let's just uh stop him from you know waiting there let's get him into here so we're talking about the end of her racing against alzheimer's to save to solve a murder wayne hoffman thank you for being here Thank you. Thank you for opening the door. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I don't want you to be sitting too long listening to us, you know, old right. hags. Um, <laughs> now, this is, this, is a, this is a very personal book here, and it has to do with your family in a couple of instances. And I wonder um, what gave you the courage or the initiative to decide to actually write a book so that you could expose all of this about your your life to the world you know i didn't start out with this idea for a book the the genesis of the whole story is that my mother used to tell a tale about what happened to her grandmother my great-grandmother i'd heard the story many times when i was growing up and i always thought it was bs the story she'd heard was that her grandmother had been murdered in winnipeg a century ago by a drive-by sniper when she was nursing her baby outside on the front porch in winter in Winnipeg. You can imagine why I never believed this story. Um, but I never said anything. My mother's a good storyteller. She told the story a million times. Uh, it was a very entertaining story to think that this is what happened. It seems crazy. When my mother was diagnosed with dementia back in 2009, the next time I went home a few months later, I brought a video camera to record her telling these family stories before she forgot them which is, by the way, something I'm very glad I did. And when she got to this story, on that trip, I finally, for the first time, called BS and said, this story never happened. Um, it's not possible. No one, no one was breastfeeding outside on a front porch in winter in Winnipeg. There were no drive-by snipers 100 years ago. There wasn't such a thing. This didn't happen. And she said, well, if that's not what happened, then what happened? And I've been a journalist for 30 years. I thought, I'll find out. Give me a week. Give me two weeks. And I thought I'd find out the truth. It would take uh, two sentences, one paragraph at the most. I would tell my mother, and that would be the end. So I didn't think there was a book here. I didn't think there was even an essay here. I thought it was a few sentences uh, just between me and my mother. It was only once I started digging into it, which, by the way, took years even to get started because of problems finding people's names and finding any records. Once I found a bit of information, I found out that while, in, tr in truth, the story my mother had told was BS, as I suspected, 
there was one tiny bit that was true, which actually is the only part that ultimately matters. So my great-grandmother was brutally murdered. It was front-page news across Canada, um, from Montreal to Toronto to Vancouver, and the case was never solved. So as opposed to coming back and telling my mother the two sentences of truth I had found out, I came back with a mystery, a different mystery, but a mystery. And it took me so long to research it because it, there aren't many records. I had some newspaper stories. I had a few official records that were not so reliable. Then I tried to track down cousins and distant cousins around the world. It took years. And while it was happening, while I was researching it, my mother's situation kept declining. She has Alzheimer's disease. It got slightly worse, then slightly worse, then much worse, then horrifyingly worse. And by the time I found out the answers I wanted, I had a book. Uh, I realized I had not only the story of the murder and how the investigation went awry and how I think it should have gotten back on track, but also about what happened to my mother and to our whole family watching sort of slow-motion disaster. My family a century ago was witness to a very fast-motion disaster, a murder. Um, and what happened to the family then is its own story, and it's in some ways parallel to what's happening in very slow motion to our family a century later, watching someone deteriorate over the course of a decade and more. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty intense story because it's very personal. You're, you're, you, there's a lot of emotion going on with your mother slowly um, losing her memory, and and her mind right in front of you while you're trying to do this. Now, I've, I've written quite a few true crime books over the years, and I know that when I'm talking stories over 100 years ago, it is real difficult to find things. And then plus you're dealing in Canada. I mean, they just started putting pictures on their license. So this is, <laughs> this is you know, so finding records and stuff. So where did you start? Like what, what area did you go to to figure this out? Well, the... There were two sort of main sources of information in the beginning. One was newspaper records, um, which took a while to find because a lot of newspapers from 100 years ago are defunct. Um, so in a couple of cases, there were records I assumed I would never find and simply gave, didn't even think to look for them because I thought they were lost to history. And in some cases, years later, found them uh, on microfilm in mysterious libraries in Manitoba. And with help from researchers in English and Yiddish, dug up newspaper reports across Canada. So that was that's a pretty good source of information around the murder itself, uh, the murder and the investigation. They're not entirely reliable because there are language barriers. My ancestors at that point didn't really speak English, nor did most of the people in their neighborhood in the north end of Winnipeg. So the newspaper reports are iffy, but they are there are many of them. The other thing I needed to find were uh, official records, birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates, um, travel uh, manifests, that kind of thing. And A, those also are not terribly reliable, Some, in, in some respects also due to language. Uh, but furthermore, the names that people had a century ago weren't the names that I knew them by today. The first names, the last names, the spellings of different names kept changing. When people came from Eastern Europe to North America, they changed their last names. When women got married, they changed their last names again. When they had to report things to a census taker, they changed their names again. And often, what I found that I didn't expect, they changed them every time. So I can watch my grandmother, who was a baby at the time, 
her name on census reports keeps changing. Every time the census taker comes around, again, because of the language barrier, I can imagine what happens. The census taker comes to the door and says, what's your daughter's name? And they say, I don't know. What did we tell you it was in English five years ago? I don't know. Whatever. The, I don't, was it Hattie? I don't remember. Was it Ethel? I don't know. Etta? I don't know. They've forgotten. They didn't use their English names. So the names keep changing, which makes it really hard <laughs> to find people in official records when you don't know either their first or last name. Yeah. <laughs> it takes quite a while to find them. Once you find them, you have records, and your first instinct when you see, oh, this is an official government report, it must be infallible. Absolutely, positively not the case. Um, language was difficult. There was no consistency. And in some cases, I think it was my, my great uncle, I found his birth certificate. But it was filed when he was in his 20s. <laughs> there must have been an occasion, maybe his marriage, when the, when the officials and the government said, you don't have a birth certificate, make one up. And so they made one up in retrospect. So the information on it is wrong. And I know it's wrong. Yeah. Um, but so you, uh, you have official records and you have newspaper reports, but they're not so great. You think they're really ironclad and they are not. Yeah, I've been through that and down that road several times. And I know it's really hard to verify information. Uh, yeah. Now, in, and also in Winnipeg, Winnipeg was kind of not a... Uh, well, I guess it was kind of growing a little bit as as a port city for Eastern Canada at the time. But I guess it, shortly after, I would think in 1914 with the war and with the Panama Canal opening up, it sort of really interrupted Winnipeg's growth. So at that point, I'm going to guess that that's kind of what would have screwed up the uh, police investigation. That That's part of it. Part of it's also a lack of resources. Um, and, you know, I can, I can't be certain of this, but I can surmise. Also, there's only so much investigating they were going to do into the murder of a young immigrant. Um, the rumors that flew around in the press and in police reports were pretty biased, uh, around these communities, both the Jews of the North End, but also their neighbors who were the non-Jews from Eastern Europe who immigrated at the same time and lived down the street from them. It was a, a largely Jewish, but not entirely Jewish neighborhood. It was almost an entirely immigrant neighborhood. Um, but many of them were not Jews. And the police were sort of suspicious of all of these people, didn't really understand them, I mean that linguistically and culturally. And there was only so much energy they were going to invest. And once the relatively clear-cut uh, theories of the crime ran aground, they kind of ran out of steam. Some of that is because I think they just, they weren't invested enough to continue, and part of it is logistics, because if they really wanted to delve deeper into some of their theories, they would have had to, first of all, train Yiddish speakers, and then send them back to Russia and Ukraine to investigate some of these suspects from before the family immigrated. And there was no way the Winnipeg Police Department was going to do any of that. <laughs> it's understandable. Of yeah, course they yeah. weren't. So at this point then, um, were you able to figure who would be um, kind of the suspects? And, and I mean this in the sense that did they have any at the time and did they believe that there were certain people that did this or did they just sort of not bother? What's remarkable is that the, the murder happens in the middle of the night on August 1st, 1913. It happens at around 3 in the morning, 2.33 in the morning. There are, at that point, 
the English dailies, there are three. Two come out in the morning and one in the afternoon. By that afternoon, it's on the front page of the paper, of the Winnipeg Tribune. So 12 hours after the murder, it's on the front page of the paper. And the police already have suspects, and they have two of them in custody. They have three suspects, and two were in custody. And they have a whole theory of the crime, and they've talked to a bunch of witnesses and neighbors on the street. And it seems like if you read the story that came out that very first day, again, hours after the murder, if you only read that story, you would think this is it's a horrible murder, but it's an open and shut case. They know who did it, how, when, why, and they have two of the three people in custody. Like, this is going to be easy. And they set an inquest. This is on a Friday. They set an inquest for the following Tuesday and figure on Tuesday they will resolve it. It'll be done. Easy. Uh, within two days, by Sunday, the entire case falls apart. The people they have in custody are released, and they start over from scratch. And then clues start appearing and disappearing, and the inquest is postponed. And then it's postponed again. And then it's postponed again, finally held, and reaches no conclusion. Um, and they charge nobody. And then it sort of peters out into various theories that get circulated in the newspapers, and I assume among police as well. And none of them pan out. By the end of the year, this is August 1st, by the end of the year, it's simply left hanging as a an open case with no theory, no suspects, no one in custody. But the police did churn through several suspects and several theories. Some of them seem ridiculous. Some of them seem quite plausible. Uh, but ultimately... Nobody. But it is remarkable considering that almost immediately they thought they had the whole thing figured out. They didn't think this would be complicated at all. They didn't think it was a difficult case to solve at all. And they thought in a couple of days it'll be done. And quite the opposite. A hundred years later, it was still open. Well, what do you think fell through about their, their evidence or their case? Because if they've, they've in their minds, okay, this is easy. We figured it out. These you know, this is the people that did it or a person, uh, arrest them and, and charge them, and then all of a sudden it all goes out the door. What, what did they do wrong? The biggest thing they did wrong uh, comes back to language again. They are talking, this is the police and the journalists, they're doing the same thing. None of them speak any of these Eastern European languages. They don't speak Yiddish, they don't speak Polish, they don't speak Ukrainian, Russian, they don't speak any of these languages that would be really helpful for them to interview people on the street. They speak English and they're using translators. They're also talking to excited crowds of neighbors. There are thousands of people who come, 3,000 people come to the funeral on Sunday. It's the largest funeral in Winnipeg's history at that point. And all during the investigation, there are never fewer than hundreds of people on the street in front of the house who are being interviewed by police and journalists, the diff difficulty is they are getting information from unreliable sources and gossips through interpreters, and all these people are playing telephone. So it's sort of like, well, I heard that this happened. Yes, I heard that that happened too, and also this other thing. And by the time it gets to the final person and through a translator, it's partly true, partly wrong, partly fabricated. And there's no way to, to unstitch all the information. So the police, they run aground very quickly because they have a suspect right off the bat who is a woman named Mary. And they've gotten all this information from the neighbors, and it all seems consistent, allegedly, that Mary was a former hired girl, a, uh, a nanny, essentially, a nanny or a maid, for my great-grandmother. She had been fired They'd gotten into a fight. This Mary was anti-Semitic. She had made 
uh, accusations against my great-grandmother. She'd threatened her. They'd had a physical altercation. And my great-grandmother had fired her, and she swore revenge. And that she came back and, with her boyfriend, committed this murder. That's the theory right off the bat. Um, the reason it falls apart is they've gotten two people confused. There are two different people who are both named Mary. One is a former employee, and one is an anti-Semite who'd had a physical altercation with my great-grandmother. But they are not the same person. <laughs> and the police don't realize this until they're a couple days into the investigation. And what, because they had a whole theory, it really was, it seemed quite solid. This Mary hated my great-grandmother, she was an anti-Semite, she threatened her, then she was fired, and she swore revenge. It all makes sense. There's ample motive. Once they realize it's two different people, the whole case collapses. Because the one who was an anti-Semite, who'd had the fight with my great-grandmother, didn't, she had no particular connection to her. And the one who had the connection, who had in fact been let go, who used to be a nanny, wasn't by any accounts an anti-Semite and hadn't been seen again. So it only made sense to police when they put these two women together, except they were two different women. So this is the mistake they made right off the bat, is they got confused. They got confused understandably. They were talking to neighbors in different languages who were gossiping and spreading information, secondhand information, and there were two different women named Mary. Right. It's understandable that they got conflated, but that's a, a, a fatal flaw in the theory of the crime. And as soon as they realize that, oh, no, there are two different people, the whole thing falls apart. And it's never reconstructed. There are theories from then keep looking to other people, different people, a man who was staying next door, maybe is connected to illegal businesses. They have all sorts of theories of the crime, but none is as sort of complete and self-evident as their initial theory that fell apart. You know, and how did you kind of uh, figure out who your your suspects would be or, or it, and I say this because you know even doing crimes I've done crimes even just as close as the 80s and when you go talk to people that are still alive that were around at a time of a crime I, there's so much gossip and stories and, and rumors about yes. oh, that person did this I heard he did this you know you get a hundred stories and even when I put out the book you'll get people commenting oh well this isn't the whole truth. Like, there's people that have these stories, so it's got to be the same thing then and probably worse because, you know, they didn't have the uh, communication like we did do now. The thing I found, and this is oddly a benefit to having this whole thing take years and not weeks, is that oftentimes, look, I'm not a full-time detective. <laughs> Very clearly not a full-time detective. I didn't actually sit down and, like, go out and pound the pavement looking for suspects for 10 years. I have a job and a different life and do other things. And then also I was taking care of my mother. There were whole periods where I would sort of step away from this research. Because, again, I didn't set out to write a book at the beginning. I just was just setting out to solve a mystery out of curiosity. Um, I found that when I would step away for weeks, months, or at one point even a couple of years, I just stepped away from the whole thing. When I came back, Everything looked different. And the things that I had been, that I had sort of put together in my mind as theories, not only of the murder, but other questions around the family, what happened to one of my great-grandmother's children who seems to vanish? What happened to her? And I thought I solved that as well. I had an idea of who committed the murder, who at least were my suspects and motives. Um, 
I had ideas. And when I stepped away and came back, I said, oh, wait, that's not right. Let me try again. And in almost every case, it was the, the second try I felt much better about uh, because I came at it with a clearer head and I could go back and st start over. It's kind of like when you put something aside and come back to it a long time later, you have to go back over everything. You can't just pick up where you left off. You have to go back to the beginning because you've forgotten certain things. And as I went back and looked at details and documents and evidence the second time around, I noticed things I hadn't noticed the first time and light bulbs started to go off. Um, and that's, and that's really what it took. It took time away from it to come back to it with fresh eyes and see it differently. Yeah. I think that's an important thing to do because you do, you do, you go over things and you, you see it from a different point of view, um, from whatever's happened. Now this was a, kind of a brutal murder for the time as well, in a sense. You, yes. know, you know, even the story of, you know, she's breastfeeding, even if she was just with her baby and someone drives by and shoots her, sounds pretty wild because, you know, <laughs> they're driving by in a car that went six miles an hour. This is not, um, this is a different time. So. It, it was quite a horrible crime. I mean, the police all comment on how this is the most brutal crime Winnipeg had seen. Um, and in truth, none of the details my mother had heard were true. So there was no sniper. There was no drive-by. What happened, and this isn't a spoiler because you find out fairly quickly in the book, the, what really happened is what, someone came into the house while my great-grandmother was asleep in bed with her two-year-old and her infant in the crib next to her, put a gun to her head and shot her, just killed her point blank um, while she was in bed with her children. Um, it's a hideous crime. Yeah. They, they didn't steal anything. It seemed like a very personal, obviously a very personal crime, um, personally motivated and extremely violent. And, yeah, that's, that's what we were really, that's what we were look, really looking at. It's a horrible, horrible thing to, to find out. And this must have really affected the neighborhood. You are saying how many people were outside and, and, and how oh, much yeah. news it made, and it was all over the place. So it must have really been... A, a big effect on that whole community. It, it was. I mean, some of the things, you, you can tell how big an effect it had, first of all, because the news spread so far and wide. I mean, that weekend, the Yiddish paper in Montreal was reporting on this murder. That's far, especially in those days, far from Winnipeg. Um, and you can also tell because of how many people were on the street, the fact that it was the largest funeral the city had ever seen, but also at that point in Winnipeg, the Jewish community on a, on a large scale had really only started arriving in the first decade of the 1900s. So when the murder happens in 1913, the community in, in any large way is not even a decade old. But they have uh, a chief rabbi at that point who's quite popular, has a large following, and of course the unofficial second chief rabbi, who is his rival, because wherever you have one chief rabbi, you have a second in opposition. The two of them have sort of, uh, they all have their devoted uh, fans in the community. The two of them come together at the funeral to both lead the funeral. And that, as far as I can tell, is something that almost never happened. That the two of them, who were quite public rivals, uh, would join together to co-officiate, seems like. It was quite an important thing in the community. Well, why were there so many people um, around at that time? Was it, was it the notoriety of the case, or was it just the Jewish community itself? Uh, well, the Jewish community really 
was quite tight knit, and they all, all, almost all lived in the same neighborhood, had almost all arrived within the past few years, and many were family members. My great grandfather was one of eight, seven of whom, seven of the siblings lived in the same neighborhood. I think three or four of them lived on the same street. Um, so people knew people. You, you were all fairly close. And when this happened, you, first of all, it's the, the horror of a murder of a young mother. It's a horrible story. But also the family by this point in 1913, although when they had arrived in Winnipeg, separately, my great-grandfather and grand, great-grandmother met in Winnipeg and married in Winnipeg, they had both arrived without really any money. But by 1913, just seven or eight years later, they were fairly successful. My great-grandfather was a cattle dealer with his brothers and had built up quite a, a good business. And they had, considering in relative terms, they had done fairly well. And they were a fairly prominent family in the neighborhood. And some of my great-grandfather's brothers were op helping to open synagogues and orphanages and uh, schools. So they were well-connected and well-known. And when this happened, really the whole community came out. It's On the one hand, of course, you would. It's a horrible crime. But really, the whole community uh, comes out uh, in force. Okay, so when we, we look at you um, as a writer, so you are a journalist and you've written books before. So you have yes. some experience here. Um, so as a writer, when you're when you're going through something that's personal like that, like you're writing about something in your family, uh, happened a long time ago, so it's not directly um, in front of you. But at the same time, you've got your um, mother going through her illness. Um, how did that emotional you know, the motion of going through that affect the actual outcome of your book? Well, it is a different thing from what I'm used to. Uh, that's definitely true. I've been a journalist for more than 30 years, and I've written novels for the last 20. This is sort of a hybrid in terms of the skills it draws on. You have the advantage of knowing how to report something and look at facts and look at documents and look for sources that I learned as a journalist. And this the sort of perseverance to work on a writing project that isn't going to be turned in tomorrow and come out the next day, but actually stretch on for years, sometimes indefinitely. There's no, there's no deadline for a book like this. You just keep writing it until it's done, uh, which could take years. In fact, it took years. The, the fact that it was so personal, let me put it this way. The, the part about my mother, which is one of the main parts of the book, I was going through that anyway. I was already emotionally involved. Um, so it's not like I was making up a story that was challenging and difficult to go through. I was already going through it. So on that front, yes, it was very, very difficult. But would it have been less difficult if I hadn't written it down? I don't think so. Um, as a writer, writing it down and trying to make sense of it and putting it in order um, was actually helpful to me particularly because by the time I was writing, by the time I realized this was a book, my mother had, had already been declining for years. And I was years into the story of her decline by the time I thought to start writing about it. So a lot of it at that point was trying to reconstruct what I had already been through, going back through old emails to put things in order, to, th to see what happened when I've forgotten the order of events, or who was worried at that point, who wasn't worried, what was my father saying? What were my mother's friends saying? Because I would correspond with them as well. My brother, my sister, my aunt, um, my parents' friends. What was everyone saying? 
So I got to go back and reconstruct a lot of that, and it really helped me put my own memories in order. And it also helped me to sort of lay down the path that my mother was on. It doesn't make it less horrible, because Alzheimer's is a horrible path. It's a truly horrible path to watch someone go down or to walk down with her. But it did make sense of it all a bit more. So in that way, yes, writing about it was challenging, but the writing about it was less challenging than actually living it. So I can't compare the two. There are plenty of people who don't write about it who live through it, and it's, that's its own horror. It's not like if I hadn't written about it, it would have gone away. So the murder is different because I didn't actually know those people a century ago. I've heard of them. They're my, my great-grandparents. Even my grandmother, who I, I did know, well, she lived with us before she died. She's a small child in this story. So I have some connection to the story 100 years ago in Winnipeg. And that my grandmother had talked about Winnipeg a little bit, and I knew that that's where she grew up. And she had told stories, most of which also turned out to be BS, about her growing up there. Um, the, story, the information I found out while I was researching the murder after I found out what I needed to know about the murder from newspapers and police reports and official documents and whatever else I could find in terms of facts, I realized that what I needed to do to put sort of flesh on these bones was to find out not about my great-grandmother's murder, which is one horrible moment, but about the whole family's life leading up to the murder and the aftermath of the murder to see what effect it had on them, what effect this tragedy had. Did it shatter the family into pieces? Did they reconstitute in some way? And the answer is yes and yes. But it makes much more sense of my family tree and my family history to go back over that and see what the family was doing before the murder and how the murder affected their, their uh, path in the new world, because it certainly did affect it. And the, the scars you can see a century later, if you know what you're looking for, you can still see them. So, so actually doing this book is almost like uh, therapy. It's almost like helping you work through everything. It, it, it was, and I don't know that that would be true for everybody, but as a writer, that's how I work through things. Um, and it was, it's very different from the novels I've written. The novels I've written, first of all, are all gay-themed. Uh, a couple of them are very sexually explicit. This book is very much not. <laughs> uh, it's not a sexually explicit book. Neither the murder nor my mother's Alzheimer's registered in that way for me. Uh, but it's certainly a very different thing. And... But the other thing that's notably different is that when, when I'm writing a novel, a novel is sort of a hermetically sealed world that I've created and with characters I've created who have motivations that I've created, who are reciting dialogue that I've created. It's all in my head. It's mine. And this is not just my story. This is a real story uh, about real people. And a lot of them are in the book. My siblings are in the book. My husband's in the book. My father's in the book. My mother, my aunt, my parents' friends, some of the people who cared for her, caregivers, doctors, they're in the book. And it's their story, too. And it's also my mother's story. She's not capable of writing her own story at this point. Um, and I haven't written her story. I've written my story about her. But it's different in that what you're trying to, to write down isn't yours and yours alone when it's nonfiction. It's yours and other people's. So you have to be very careful to get things right um, or to get things as, as true as you can make them. And it's a challenge, you know, as an example, when I'm telling stories about 
things my mother told me, not things I remember myself, but things my mother told me about, let's say, her childhood or her marriage before I was born. These are stories I remember her telling me. I could go back and ask my father what he remembers, and he'll remember things differently, both because sometimes because he was there firsthand and has a different memory, or because he also heard these things from my mother but remembers them differently, or has a different spin, or has forgotten things I've remembered, or vice versa. Our stories are going to be different. So at some point I had to decide what it was I was trying to get down on paper, and the answer is I was getting down my story of my mother, so my memories of her memories, my memories of the things she told me. And they may not be 100% accurate, or maybe they're as accurate as someone else's recollections would be, but the point is these are, this is how I heard it, and this is how I remember it. And, and, leaving an opening, the other people in this story may also have different memories, either factually or just their own spins on things, and that's fine. This is my version of what happened, and I, I can't pretend that it's like the stone-cold gospel truth. It's, it's my version. So at the end of the book, and now that you're finished and it's, and it's out, um, how do you think it's changed you? Well, it's certainly given me a larger grounding in where I came from uh, and a greater understanding of my mother and what she went through. It also gave me, I mean, on, on a sort of obvious level, it gave me connection to an extended family that I never had. Much of my mother's or my grandmother's and my great-grandmother's family stayed in Canada. Not all, but most. Many of them left Winnipeg for Vancouver in the 40s. So I have a cluster of cousins in Vancouver, uh, most of, some of whom I had heard of but never met. I have more distant cousins in Winnipeg who I had never even heard of. And then there are cousins around the world who I had no idea existed uh, because I didn't know... I didn't know until I wrote the book that my great-grandmother, who was murdered, had siblings at all. Um, she did, and now I know their descendants as well. My great-grandfather, I knew, had many siblings. I just didn't know them because they didn't live anywhere near me. I grew up outside Washington, D.C. They were still in Canada. I didn't really know them growing up. So it certainly gave me a larger extended family. But it also gave me a, a greater sense of really the women in my family in particular, the lineage of my great-grandmother, my grandmother, and my mother. And what tenacious women they were and what they went through. I knew my grandmother uh, in her later years. I knew her. She lived with us before she died. And I knew her when I was growing up. She was my grandmother. I was a little kid. She was my grandmother. And I knew her on that level, which is a, one very specific way to know someone. And I knew her indirectly through my mother's stories about her when she was growing up. But it was really only in researching this that I got a full sense of my grandmother's life, of her being born in Winnipeg, growing up in this house that is shattered by trauma when she's three. And what she endured as a small child, her, her father remarries. They have a blended family with more kids and stepkids and half-sisters. And, and then they uproot themselves from Winnipeg and move to rural Saskatchewan for seven years, which I never knew about. And she lived on the prairie for seven years. And then she gets up and moves to the States on her own with nothing to support her and no family behind her and lives on her own as a single woman for seven years in New York City before she gets married. Uh, so I really got to see this woman who I didn't know, my grandmother. I got to see who she really was in sort of the span of her life. 
And she's the connecting tissue between the story of the murder, my great-grandmother, and the story of Alzheimer's, my mother. She's the woman who links the two. Um, and I, I already knew her, but I didn't really know her whole story, her whole life story, until I wrote the book. And I got to see her, her life literally from her birth to her death and everything in between. I, I never knew that. Well, I was wondering, did you get any pushback from family uh, debunking family stories and myths that were believed for so long? Um, at the beginning, this story about the drive-by sniper <laughs> was, was one that I don't know that my mother ever really believed either. I don't know. But the notion of calling BS and saying, this, this is not true, <laughs> um, was not something she ever would have done. And if I had found, look, there, there are a lot of theories that come up about uh, the first thing you think if you've ever watched Law and Order and you hear that a young mother was murdered, your first instinct is it was her husband who did it. <laughs> Either he pulled the trigger or he hired someone to do it. That's the first thing that comes to mind. And that's very easy to watch when you're watching Law and Order. But when you think, well, that was my, my great-grandfather from my mother, her grandfather, you think, oh, that was my grandfather who I actually knew when he was a murderer <laughs> <laughs> and he murdered his wife. And then smilingly continue to raise his children. Like, that seems like a psychopathic monster. So that's not a Law & Order episode all of a sudden. That's your grandfather's, like, a psychopathic murderer. That would be a very hard thing if that were what I had found out, which is a theory that comes up in the book. Or their connections to organized crime. Um, and again, that's a neat thing to watch in a movie or a documentary. But to think, was my grandfather, again, for my mother, her grandfather, my great-grandfather, was he a mobster? Hmm. He might have been. Were his brothers mobsters? Probably. <laughs> um, were they bootleggers? Yeah, they were pretty sketchy characters. As I found out, they were pretty sketchy characters. And it seems like a horrible thing to find out about a family member. It might be an entertaining thing to find out in an episode of Law and Order or a Who Done It on TV or you know Dateline. But when that's someone you knew and it's a relative, that's a much harder thing to find out. So I don't know if that was part of the concern. If that's not what happened, what if the truth is more awful? And what if it incriminates someone I knew who was a relative? Uh, this isn't just finding out, oh, it turns out a distant cousin I never met was a horrible person. This is my grandfather was a horrible person. Is that what we're saying? Did he kill someone? Did he kill his wife? Wow. Um, that would be a horrible thing to find out. So that that's the kind of pushback I think wasn't just about don't shatter my crazy story. <laughs> it was what if the truth is more incriminating than we would like it to be? Uh, that would be a, a hard thing to to find out, that someone yeah. you knew was that kind of awful, awful, per truly horrible person. Yeah, yeah, it would be. You know, Dave lives with that every day, but every day. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a different story. That's now, true. now someone comes out, picks up your book, and reads it. At the end of the book, what is it that you're hoping that they take away from this book? Well, there are a lot of things I hope they take away, and it depends on what it is they, they're looking for going in. Um, on the one hand, I hope there's an entertaining story. That's the most important thing. As a writer, that's above all the most important thing, that you find it compelling and entertaining. Um, and emotionally resonant. I don't, I don't imagine that's that's difficult. It's a very emotional story. Um, I'm hoping that they walk away from the story about my mother 
A, appreciating what I always appreciate about my mother is that she was a, a fantastic storyteller and funny as hell. Um, I can't possibly capture all of her humor in my own words, but she's a really, really funny lady. My father once said she's the funniest broad I ever met, and that's absolutely, <laughs> undeniably true. There are no rivals. She's a terrific storyteller, and I loved listening to her stories growing up. So I hope people walk away knowing who my mother was, because obviously she's the most important person in the book to me. But I also hope that people who don't, who didn't know my mother, <laughs> or maybe are not so concerned with whether she was funny or not, see what it is that we went through and how we dealt with things, both in terms of uh, caring for someone who has Alzheimer's or any kind of dementia, the things we did right, things we did wrong, things we probably should have done differently in retrospect, but also how it was uh, that I decided to dig into this genealogical mystery. Because I know it's a popular thing. Everyone wants to look into their family history to see what they might find, to see who they're related to, to see genetically what their background is. Does it turn out your father's not really your father? Turns out you ha he had a secret family and now you have half-siblings. You know, people are always looking for this kind of thing. Uh, there are certain things you can find out with a drop of blood or a, a cheek swab. You can find out about those secret half-siblings. That's the way to do it. But the deeper history of a family, which I think is what people are really curious about, is what, what your ancestors were like, not what their chromosomes looked like. That you can't find out from a genetic test. You need to, to have different sources. You need to dig in personally, and you need to spend time. And I hope that what I did might serve as a model for other people looking to do similar things. How did I find out things from 100 years ago, from before things were kept in computer databases? How did I find out things from records that had names spelled in ways I've never seen before with people whose, whose first and last names were unfamiliar to me before I started all of this? How did I find two dozen cousins around the world? How did I do it? Um, I hope they could take a lesson away from that in case they want to look into their own family histories and find out, again, the, the stuff that really matters, not just who had blue eyes and who, had, who went bald. Like, the important stuff. What were people like? How I did that research. The last bit is for people who are entertained by true crime, and who really who isn't, <laughs> um, I hope they'll, they'll take the trip with me because what I've tried to do isn't just tell you, uh, here's what happened and here's who done it and here's why. I, I'm, I'm new to this. I'm not a detective. I'm starting out as an amateur just like most of us are. And so what I try to do in the book is show you how I went about it what I kind of got wrong, how I backtracked and second-guessed myself, and all the different tributaries and dead ends I walked down. Sometimes thinking, I found it, only two years later realize I didn't, and then have to go back and start over. So I walk you through the whole process, and I hope that people who are also interested in investigating things or looking at true crime will look and see what, a, what my process looked like, not just the part that I think led me through the maze to the end, but all the detours along the way that led either nowhere or led to interesting but not consequential uh, destinations. I think all of it's important. So you see what it really took to, to dig into this and how I did it. So um, how, do, how do you like people to get a hold of you or, or readers to uh, send you any emails or messages? Do you have a website? Are you doing social media? Tinder, I have a website. I do have a website. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm a, well, I have all, I'll give you a couple of ways to find me. 
Um, I'll leave some of them aside for a different conversation. Um, you can always find me on my website at waynehoffmanwriter.com, or you can find me on Instagram at waynehoffmanwriter. Those are the two best ways to reach me with your thoughts about the book. Um, and hopefully you'll find, you can find the book in paperback, electronic, audio, hardcover, however you like to read, you can read it this way. Perfect. Of course, we'll have that up on our website as well. People listening can hit one click. They know what to do, and they'll get right to you. I mean, they're not going to get your grinder, but that's, that's, you know. (laughs) That you have to really ask nicely. Yeah, yeah. You you say pretty please. Um, Now, I I wonder, um, what do you think the biggest misconception is out in public about dealing with Alzheimer's and that whole um, thing and caring about someone that um, is going through it. Like, wh- what do you think people do not get? I'll, I'll tell you, this was, it was a surprise to me when it happened. And the more I've talked to people who've been through this, the more I find that it resonates with them. There was a, there was a man named Jim who was, uh, he ran a sort of day program that my mother went to for other people with dementia. And he also ran a night program of, uh, sort of peer support counseling for their caregivers that my father went to. So he knew both my parents. And once when we were pretty far into my mother's decline, but she was still living at home, he came over to the house and he asked me how my father was doing because my mother was getting worse. And my father was having a hard time caring for her. It was getting increasingly difficult. And he said, how's your father doing? And I said, he's doing okay, but he's, you know, I know things are difficult, but he's committed. He's really in it. Uh, he's in it for the long haul. He's going to take care of her as long as he can. And this man, Jim, looked at me and said, yeah, why? And I was taken aback. I said, what do you mean? Why? Because it's his, it's his wife. I don't understand the question. What do you mean, why? And he, what he said was really telling. This is someone who works with people with dementia all the time and their caregivers. He said, first of all, this isn't like a broken arm. It's not that you're going to be in a cast for six weeks and then you'll be better. There is no better. We all know that this is a decline. We don't know how long it will take, but it only goes one direction. It gets worse until it's untenable and you cannot live at home. He said, what do people mean when they say, I'm going to take care of her as long as I can? They mean, I'm going to take care of her until either I fall apart because I'm mentally and emotionally or physically exhausted and simply cannot do it, and or there's a crisis. That's what they mean. I'm going to do it until either I'm completely depleted or the person I'm caring for is in an emergency situation. Knowing that those are the only two ways that you'll be forced to make a decision to move the person to another facility with full-time care, knowing that that will eventually happen, why wait until there's a crisis? Why not do it sooner when you still have emotional reserves to care for the person and the person hasn't had an emergency yet? Why not do it sooner? And I heard what he said, and I talked to my father about it, and it all seemed so logical. But we didn't do that either. We kept her at home until there was a crisis. Um, And the crisis, like all crises, it came very suddenly out of the blue. In retrospect, it wasn't sudden at all. But at the time, it seemed like, wow, I couldn't have imagined this happening yesterday. My mother almost, she could have burned the house down with my father asleep upstairs. Mm -hmm. Um, That would have been a tragic ending. The day before that happened, we never imagined that could happen. And then the day it did happen, we said, well, I can't believe it didn't happen before. And that's the day we realized um, this is a crisis and we have to move her right now. She can't stay in the house really one more minute. Um, 
when I talk to other people who have been through this and we say, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently? Their answers are, are uniformly the same. I would have gotten more help sooner. I would have, whether that help is in-home care, moving to a facility with full-time care, whatever it is, I would have gotten more help sooner. And we, we and my family have said the same thing. If we'd known, we would have moved my mother a year before we did. It would have been better for her and it would have been better for all of us. It just, it's, there's something in the caregiver's psyche that makes it seem like you're giving up or you don't care enough. But caring enough isn't about doing it until there's an emergency or a crisis or something that's terribly, terribly wrong. Caring enough includes caring for yourself. And that's something, it, it's, it's almost impossible to see when you're in it. It really is. And I can tell people that and they will hear it and they will understand it and they will not actually grasp it on a fundamental level because we didn't either. When this man, Jim, said that to me, it went into my brain intellectually and it didn't change how we acted. And it was only in retrospect we realized that, of course, he was right. Uh, he was right. We should have gotten more help sooner. Yeah, I think there's a there's a sense of betrayal, but, you know, for someone to um, – put someone they love, take them out of their home and put them into a, into a care center, I think there's that inside feeling that you're betraying them somehow. Yes. And so my father's mother also had Alzheimer's. And she had a husband, who was, my, it was her second husband, who was a lovely man and took very good care of her. And she also, she lived at home. This was in the early 80s. She lived at home until he could no longer take care of her. He was... He didn't have help. He did all he could. She hadn't really spoken or been lucid for months. And it was time. And he took her to a home. And as they were pulling up, she turned, this woman who had not really spoken a lucid sentence in months, she turned to him and said, I know what you're doing, you son of a bitch. Mm. Which may have been the last lucid sentence she ever uttered. And it was shattering. I mean, imagine how that would feel. And I think this also hung over my father as a legacy when it was time for him to put my mother in a home because he worried, well, what if, what if that's going to be her response? And in truth, her response was nothing. Um, she walked in the door and that was the end of it. There was no, there was no recrimination. There was no bitterness because she didn't understand what was happening by this point. Uh, so he really had nothing to fear except that memory hanging over him for decades from his own mother's experience. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a pretty uh, devastating uh, diagnosis for someone to have, and you yes. know, and and really hard for um, a family or people to go through. I guess that uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, what do you got coming up next after this, or are you taking a break? Well, uh, both sort of. Um, my first priority is trying to get this book into people's hands um, and also trying to get back in front of an audience and talk to them about this book, which is something I enjoy doing. I like talking in front of a room full of people, which probably makes me somewhat crazy. And especially after two years in a pandemic, it's very nice to be in front of a room of people um, talking about something. At some point, I'll get back to the next thing, and I'm not sure what it is. There are a couple of projects that I had started before I before this part of my life turned into a book. I had a couple things sketched out and even started. And we'll see. If one of them cries out to me and says, I'm next, I'm next, then that will be the next thing I work on. But it's entirely possible that something I haven't thought of will jump up instead. Because the last time I said this, I had two things I was choosing between. 
two different novels I had begun, and I sat down to see which one I wanted to write. And it occurred to me that the story of my mother's Alzheimer's and this long-ago unsolved murder was actually the next book. So those two novels I was hoping to start, I have still not made progress on because I wrote this book instead. So maybe I'll come back to them or maybe something new will come up. I'm not sure. You know, when you, um, because you've had journalism, you know, you've written articles where you have to do it, you know, like you were saying, factually, you've had that experience. Um, Yes. But when you're writing a a subject that's um, got emotion, let's say even a fiction novel and, and other things, and you're getting in the minds of characters and all that, that's, that's a, a little bit more uh, emotional. Um, do you find it difficult? And, and I say this because in the last couple of years, you know, with the pandemic and, and the craziness and, you know, the Trump stuff and all this crazy wackadoodle stuff, um, but with all of that emotion and stress and, and, you know, tension going on around you outside of your home, does that affect you when you try to write? Um, it does, but not in, not in always expected linear ways, because on the one hand, the things that are swirling around you are things that make you want to write. Um, and sometimes the things that are going around you make you want to write about something, anything else. <laughs> so it all depends on how it hits you. But one of the things I've always tried to do is, uh, in novels is try to get it, uh, sort of documenting, uh, something going on in the culture that I don't think is being documented properly and something that can be documented best through fiction as opposed to journalism. If I wanted to cover something as a journalist, I could do it, but some things are better. I think through character, uh, they're more, they're sort of thicker with detail and emotion than they can be as journalism. And there are things uh, that I would like to explore in fiction and those aren't, those are things going on around us now, but they're, I don't mean like the headline of the news today. That's not what I mean. I mean things circulating in the culture that I think are important that should be teased out a little bit or foregrounded or discussed um, about how people are living, often particularly about how gay men are living. It's just because that's the sort of cultural touchstone I have in front of me at all times. Um, and those things that tend to surface are, yes, about the world we're living in now, but they're not about CNN, per se. Yeah. yeah. My, Let CNN be CNN. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to write about Kim Kardashian. No, I definitely, <laughs> po- absolutely, positively, I'm not going to write about Kim Kardashian. Well, she's just an average, normal person. <laughs> absolutely, positively not writing about Kim Kardashian. That I can guarantee you she's not on my list. Oh, boy. You know, you know Pete Davidson and... And, you know, and, and his big wiener, you know, anyway. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to read what other people have to say about them, or alternatively, not. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy world we live in, but I think it's always been crazy. We just have a lot more access to it now. So, that's you know, true. We see it more in our face. So, well, it's certainly been an interesting conversation, and uh, we're glad you came on. And, uh, an important book, and um, we recommend it to everybody. This is a great book, and it's the end, the end of her, and it's written by um, Wayne Hoffman, who's been our guest. Um, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Wayne.